today will be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and that's page 1022 in your Bibles there on the pews. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you preached, which also you received, and in which you stand, which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For, I'm, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they. All yet not, I, but, but by the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Good morning. It is good to see each of you, and if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you being here is an encouragement to us. And we hope that we can be an encouragement to you and that you'll come back time and time again and that together we can worship and serve God. We've been looking off and on for several months now at a series that we're bringing very close to an end. And as we think about this series, I want to ask you this morning an important question. As a matter of fact, have you ever heard a student in a classroom ask a question and a teacher replies with that answer at the beginning of the answer and says, you know, that's a very good question or, you know, that's a very important question. And then the teacher gives the answer. What's the most important question that could ever be asked? What must I do to be saved? We see it asked in the Scriptures, and we see the answer given in the Scriptures. But this morning, I want us to go back, and I want us to think about that very important question as we tie it into this series of lessons, as we think about what does a 4,500-year-old seed produce? You know, we've been looking at every aspect of the Lord's church, or at least every aspect that we have considered. We've looked at it from the standpoint of, if we go back to the first century and Acts the second chapter, the Lord established a church. And the apostles continued the doctrine, the teaching of that church. And if we take that new covenant and we plant that seed today, won't it produce the same church that was produced back in the first century? Just as in the tombs or... Uh, that there have been uh, seeds found that are 4,500 years old and those seeds have been planted and those seeds have grown the same plants that they would have grown if they had been planted the very next season after which they had been produced. Right here is a little pamphlet and you know when you see people on the streets out handing out pamphlets, you may be one of those that kind of turns the other way and walks on. I'm not one of those. I usually walk real close and I try to hear for a few minutes what they're having to say and I reach out and I grab their pamphlet. 
Well, I've done that recently in the last few months. I've done that in Gatlinburg and I've done that in New York City. And I don't remember which place this pamphlet came from, but it was probably from one of those two places. Now, this pamphlet right here has a very good uh, statement on the front, how to be saved and know it. And then as we go inside this pamphlet, we read on the second page here in bold print, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing we can do to deserve salvation, if that's what they mean. Nothing we could do to deserve salvation. Now, is there anything that you and I have to do to respond to God's grace offering us salvation? That's the question. You see, if we took literature like this, the presentation in Acts, the second chapter, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic, Let's be realistic here. According to literature like this, Acts the second chapter, Peter would have stood up and he would have began that sermon facing those that had crucified Jesus and he would have told that Jesus of Nazareth, the man that you had crucified with your wicked hands and you had slain, he is the Savior of the world. And they would have been convicted of their sins in verse 37 and they would have said, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? Notice that. They said, what shall we do to be saved? Peter should have said in verse 38, there is nothing you can do. Fifty days ago, four weeks and one day ago to the date, Jesus Christ spread His arms and He died on the cross and He did everything. And you don't have to do anything. I often wonder why when people place things like literature... Why do they keep writing? I don't understand that. If there's nothing that we can do, that means everyone is saved and there's no response that is required of us. But if you will go ahead and read, you will almost always read where even these same people expect the individual reading this to do something. And this particular uh, pamphlet here, they expect the individual to say this prayer. And this is how this pamphlet closes. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry for my sins. I believe that the Lord Jesus died for me and rose again. And with all my heart, I turn from my sin and receive Him as Savior right now. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Amen. Let's just stay here until we find that in the sea. Don't you think that if Jesus is the Savior, the only place we can go to seek His salvation is to what He said? His covenant is the New Testament. Let's just start reading right now, and we can say, you start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we'll pass out Acts and the Epistles and Revelation, and, and let's just sit here until somebody comes up on that prayer. Because surely, if we're talking about Jesus saving us, no one would say something that Jesus hasn't said. How long are we going to sit here? How long would we have to read to find the sinner's prayer? We'd sit here until eternity. Because, friends, the sinner's prayer is not in Christ's covenant. The sinner's prayer is a made-up means by man pertaining to salvation that ought to only be spoken of by Jesus Christ. 
This morning in the text that was so capably read, we read what Paul said to those of Corinthians when he went into them and how he said, I delivered to you first of all about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, we could study about what the Lord says about salvation just from the Gospels. We could study it just from the book of Acts. This morning, I've chosen to do something because I thought this would follow along better with our theme. We're saying, if here we are, the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, if we take the seed, the Word of God, and plant it here, won't it produce the same thing that was planted years ago back in the first century? And we believe the answer is yes. So wouldn't this be a neat exercise this morning? Let's go back and see that seed planted in one particular city. And that city was Corinth. And let's see what happened in Corinth whenever that seed was planted. Let's see if they said the sinner's prayer. Let's see if they just invited Jesus into their heart. Or let's see if there are other things that took place. First, I need to note this. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, back in verse 1 and 2, which was part of the text, but I want you to notice the emphasis on the gospel as we read these two verses again. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. See, he's going back to when he first came into Corinth. Which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stood, by which also you are saved. Flip over to Romans, the first chapter. And we have several passages. They'll be on the screen, and if you want to flip there, we'll be making some time this morning. Romans, the first chapter, look what Paul said when he went into Rome and spoke to them, or when he went by letter into Rome and he spoke to them about the gospel. Listen to verse 16, 17, and 18. Let's read this together. Romans 1. For I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now notice what is in the gospel. He says, number one, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? It's the power of God to salvation. What I need to know to be saved, we're going to see that I need to know what is righteous if I'm ever going to be saved. And I need to know what is wicked if I'm ever going to be saved. And I can't be the standard of that. Notice we're going to read the pronoun it. Talking about it being the gospel. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is as written, the just shall live by faith. Now wait a minute. You mean I need that gospel if I'm going to know what is right? If I'm going to live by faith? Absolutely. I can't live spiritually if I do not know what is right and I don't set the standard of righteousness and some man doesn't set the standard of righteousness. Only God sets the standard of righteousness. I also need to know what's wicked. And we have that revealed to us too. Notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and let's notice what Paul preached as he preached the gospel. He's going into Corinth and he's reminding them of his first entrance into Corinth. And he says in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Let's pause there for just a moment. Paul could have probably come with excellency of speech. I would say that Paul had enough experience preaching that he could do a very good job preaching. That's just my opinion. But that wasn't the emphasis when he came into Corinth, his speech. It also wasn't human wisdom. Notice what the emphasis was as we end verse 1. Declaring to you the testimony of God. Someone says, hey, I just want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. If I'm lost and dying in sin, you know what I want you to tell me? I want you to tell me what God said. We don't have time in this lesson 
But friends, it may be splitting hairs, so to speak, but it's important for me to recognize that it's more important for me to speak the testimony of God than it is for me to witness. To witness is to tell what God has done for us, and that doesn't hold a candle to what God says every man needs to do. Because when we start talking about what God has done for us, we may have misread things. We may have different situations and circumstances in our life. But what we can rest assured every time is the right answer for every person is to say, this is what God has done. Now, let's interrupt for just a moment and go back to the first text this morning, just in our minds. Paul, what did you tell him about God? Remember the first text we read this morning? I told him how he sent his son to this earth and how he lived and how he died and how he's buried and how he's resurrected. The testimony of God. Preacher, every teacher, you teach somebody that wants to influence their neighbor. We need to know this. Paul, what did you do when you're in Corinth? I determined not to know anything among you except crucified. I think of a man that had a backbone of steel. I think of a man of courage and faith. And I think of a man that you just couldn't scare him. Do you know what? Paul says, I'm not... You see, when Paul was entering into Corinth, if we go back to Acts the 16th chapter, we see that in Acts the 16th chapter, he'd been in jail. We go to the 17th chapter and we see that they had left jail and they'd made their way to Thessalonica. But after a few weeks there, persecution drove them down to Berea. After teaching, People were always on the move. And he says, I felt weak. I felt alone. The truth is, I was afraid to the point... I was trembling. You ever wanted to go to your neighbor's door and knock on it and invite them to friend's day? And you said, I can't do it. Think about Paul. That must have been the way Paul felt whenever he was going into Corinth. Paul, what do you do? What do you do when you're afraid to do what you know you ought to do? He says you just go back to what you ought to do and you begin at the beginning. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about His Son. Let me tell you about His death. Let me tell you about His burial and His resurrection. And so Paul went into Corinth. Even he was at odds, if you will, with himself. His emotions were not settled.
there a while. Let's look at the results here. We're in Acts, the 18th chapter. For time's sake, we can't build uh, the verses before this, but it's just telling about him coming in to Corinth, and, and it talks about him going into the synagogues, but yet finally he was driven out of the synagogues. And in verse 7, uh, he, he goes into the house of justice next door to the synagogue. And now let's read verse 8. Acts, the 18th chapter, verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. What a wonderful statement there. The ruler of the synagogue of all things, he was the one that believed in Jesus. Now, what was the result of other people in Corinth? Notice this. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. As a matter of fact, when we look in Acts, the 18th chapter, which is about Corinth, and when we look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which, of course, is written to Corinth, we learn that those folks heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believed it, they repented, they confessed Jesus, and they were baptized, and they were commissioned to live faithful. Let's notice some of that real quickly this morning. Look with me, if you will, as we go back to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. I know we refer to this one time already in this scripture reading this morning, already one time in this lesson, but I want you to notice it again, and this time I want you to look for the word believe. Last time we referred to this, we put the emphasis on what was preached, and remember it was the gospel that was preached that saved these people. But notice now, he questions their belief. In other words, he's saying, it might have been a good belief, and if so, you're saved. Or he says, it might have been a belief in vain, and if so, they need to do some changing in their life. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, verse 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, what does the word vain mean? The word vain means empty. You mean we could take something that has the power to save souls. It has the knowledge to tell us about God's grace that can save us. It tells us the response that we should have to God's grace in order for us to be saved. And you mean we could take that and instead of it being precious to us in our life, it become empty and worthless. Absolutely. It's what we do with it. You take a knife in the hand of a criminal... And it does harm. You put the knife in the hand of a surgeon. It saves lives. The gospel can be placed on a shelf. And we've chose a way of life that will harm us. Even though we may live within reach of the gospel all of our life, it'll harm us. Or we can take that gospel and we can believe it, not in vain but believe it with all of our heart and it change our life and things will be better. Let's see a poor example. James, the second chapter. Here's a chapter that tells us in verse 19 about how we can believe in vain. Let's look at James 2 and verse 19. You believe that there is one God? This is a little bit of sarcasm here, okay? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. To have an intellectual understanding that God exists and that He has a Son, Jesus, that came to this earth and died is not enough to save anyone. 
There's a lot of people on this earth that have that intellectual understanding. In other words, you could say to them, do you believe in God? And they could honestly answer yes. You could say, do you believe that he has a son, Jesus? And they could honestly answer yes. And you could say, do you believe that he died on the cross and that he's the Savior of the world? And they could honestly answer yes. And the truth be, they're not saved. Why? Because they have a belief that is based solely on facts, upon intellect. You see, that's why Paul wrote to those of Corinth and he says, make sure that your belief is not in vain. I need to run a little test on myself this morning. And as we introduce this test, we turning to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. This little test that I need to run upon myself is I need to see whether or not my belief is what God wants my belief to be. How can I know whether or not my belief is in vain? If my belief is what God wants it to be, a belief of conviction, it's going to cause what Paul wrote to those of Corinth in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. Notice verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now note here, as we think about repentance, repentance will only take place when someone first has a belief that convicts them of sin. Back in your minds to Acts the second chapter, remember he introduced Jesus of Nazareth as being the Savior of the world, and the people sitting in the audience were thinking, wait a minute, that's the one we crucified. Their belief led them to the point that now not only did they know who Jesus was, but they wanted to make things right in their life. So then, because they were pricked in their hearts, they said, now what do we need to do to be saved? And they were told to repent. You see, repentance is a response of belief. In other words, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He's the Savior of the world. I believe, now note this, it's sin that separates me from God. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe I'm in desperate need of a Savior. What does my Savior want me to do? Godly sorrow is when we can honestly say, I don't care how long ago you've been baptized, will you please listen carefully to this point? On more than one occasion, I've studied with people at the time of their conversion, and they have said to me, you know, I've wasted a lot of years out living in the world, but I've got to tell you, I'm not really disappointed in individuals that I've heard state that are faithful today. Friends, that's not true conversion. True conversion is saying, Lord, I have sinned against you and I am sorry. If I could go back and redo it, I'd do it differently. There can be no pride in sin and talk about salvation. Salvation can only come apart when we're ready to repent. 
Now, we talk about salvation and the whole process of salvation. What is our responsibility? God's done His part, and His part was the toughest part. He gave His Son to die on the cross for us. But now let's talk about our part. What's our part? We're studying about that this morning, and you know what I need to realize? Probably the hardest part of coming to the Lord isn't believing. The hardest part isn't being baptized into Christ. The hardest part is repentance. To be willing to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And I'm turning from that. Now, let's talk about confession for just a moment. But I want to build the stage. And let's go to John the 12th chapter and build the stage on confession very quickly here. And John the 12th chapter, notice what was happening in the synagogue. In John the 12th chapter in verse 42. As we think about confession, I want you to note the fact that it is confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But also note the fact that as this topic is addressed in the Scriptures, it almost always is related to whether or not someone is ashamed of Jesus or not. In other words, in in order to be saved, it's not that someone one time in their life says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then they're baptized and it's over with. Confession is a part of a Christian's life. In other words, the question is, are you ashamed of Jesus or not? Look at John, the 12th chapter, verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, talking about rulers of the synagogue, many believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see that? Even in Jesus' day, many of the rulers in the synagogue, they knew who He was, they understood who He was, and there was one thing that kept them from following Him. And that was, they knew that if they followed Jesus, and this is in John the ninth chapter, verse 22, that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. They weren't ready to give up their social standing, their family standings. They were not ready to give up the economical standing that they had of being a faithful Jew, active in the rulership of the synagogue. They were not ready to give those things up. Intellectually, they believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But in conviction, their belief meant nothing because they desired the praise of men more than they did the praise of God. Now let's take that over to the city of Corinth. Let's go back now to Acts, the 18th chapter. We've already read it, and some of you may have already put this together in your mind. But let's read it again and notice who Crispus was again. Acts, the 18th chapter. Then Crispus, who is he? The ruler of the synagogue. What a story. Believed on the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. You see the point? There were many rulers in the synagogues throughout the country that believed Jesus the Son of God, but they wouldn't confess it. And here is a ruler of the synagogue that he believes it, and apparently he's willing to confess it because... He's baptized into Christ. As a matter of fact, when we read on down to verse 17, we see that there's now, by the time we get to verse 17, another ruler in the synagogue, and he probably was the one that was replacing Crispus because he was probably cast out of the synagogue because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Now, someone could rightfully say, Preacher, you snuck that one in because that verse doesn't tell us that Crispus was baptized. It just said he believed, and that's what the other rulers did. Maybe he never was baptized. 
Well, we go over to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and in verse 14 it says, I thank God, this is Paul writing to those that were starting to follow preachers, and he was trying to get them to go back and to follow Jesus. And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Crispus was baptized. He was a believer that was willing to repent of sins. And he was willing to confess, even though it probably cost him his social and political standings in his society, he was willing to confess Jesus and be baptized into Jesus for the remission of his sins. Now, you remember that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter in verse 2, that he determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. I want to show you a slide here about what happens when Jesus Christ is preached. We don't have time to develop this, but this is powerful. When we go through Acts, and we look, go one slide forward. When we go through Acts there, we can look and we can see the first verse, Acts the second chapter, verse 22, where Jesus Christ was preached. And the result in verse 41 was that they were baptized. We can see in Acts the eighth chapter, in verse 4, when the Samaritans were preached about Jesus... They came in and preached Jesus. In verse 12, they were baptized. When we go into Gaza, into the desert with the Ethiopian, Philip in verse 35 of the 8th chapter preached Jesus. And the result in 38 was that he was baptized. We go to the ninth chapter and we see Jesus revealed to Paul and him told to go into Damascus and wait. And when Ananias came... He was baptized. When we see in Acts the 10th chapter in Caesarea, we see the Gentiles there and Cornelius. He and his household were taught about Jesus, and the result was they were baptized. We see Lydia in Acts the 16th chapter in verse 10 and verse 14. Jesus was preached to them, and we see that she was baptized. In the latter part of that same chapter, we see that the jailer came to them and wanted to know about what to do to be saved, and they preached Jesus to them and they were baptized. Somebody says, you know, I think we just need to talk about Jesus. Absolutely. Let's just talk about Jesus the way the apostles talked about Jesus. And you know what happens? People enter into the water to be baptized. Over and over and over. Let's just take that same seed, the teaching of the apostles, and let's just plant it today. And the result will be people say, you know, I believe. And I'm willing to repent of sins. And I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'll confess Him before man. And I want to be baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, in verse 58, Paul says to these good people, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. After we're baptized, we need to continue. Continue living for the Lord. This morning, we go back to that important question, are you saved? And we don't give an answer that's made up by man. Let's give an answer by the Savior Himself. Let's go to His covenant that was planted and and let's plant that same thing. And so this morning, we ask the first question, Have you ever been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? And if you haven't, do you believe? Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to confess before man? If so, come and be baptized into Christ. Maybe somewhere along the way, after you're baptized, you've lost that steadfastness. He does want us to continue. We must continue. We can't put our hands to the plow and look back. If you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.